Hello, and welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding, Interview Edition, recorded Thursday, February 25th, 2016. This is Paul Koska, owner of Brick and Brack Games, and I am your host for today's episode of the Game of Crowdfunding. A quick shout-out to Don Lloyd, who supports all us geeks over on Patreon. Thanks so much, Don. You rock. Now, if you'd like a shout-out, too, make sure to check out the Patreon page. There should be a link to that in the show notes. And now, on to the interview. And who is joining me today on Skype? Hey, Paul. It's Chris Handy. How you doing? I'm doing great, and we are really pleased to have you. So, Chris has got a, a game that, if you're listening to this when it comes out, it will have just launched on Kickstarter and probably already met its goal. Um, <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> I should say that because I actually have Chris's last Kickstarter project here on my desk. A bunch of these tiny little games here sitting right on the desk. They're awesome. Pack of games. If you haven't already picked those up, you should do so. Uh, but we'll talk about the games, the many, many games um, here in a bit. Uh, first, for those of you who've who've already heard cr- Game of Crowdfunding in the past, you know that we have to break open the vault and pull out the Jeff King patented warm-up questions. So, <laughs> Chris Handy from Pack a Game. When you are not making games, what do you do for a living? Uh, well, um, recently I was doing kids' music and educational products, um, for about the last 20 years. And, um, I'm slowly kind of phasing out this business and trying to take on, uh, publishing and design full time. Um, certainly it's not a, it's not a time to do that when it's, you know, very lucrative and I'm bringing in a great income. It's just as far as what I want to be committing time to and, and, um, it's just seems to be the right time to do that. So I've kind of sunset that, uh, business for the moment. And uh, doing this full time. Well, let's um, just because I'm very curious. You you did kids music and educational products. What what all was involved in that? Well, uh, when I was in my college years, my parents uh, launched a business um, of educational products and a series of workshops. Basically, um, the the main key was how to use music more effectively in, in early education. And so uh, that was also at a time where I was starting to um, create songs myself and and record. And uh, I started my own um, recording studio. And I started uh, creating some of the music that they uh, were marketing. And so we kind of created a partnership there. And um, it, that's continued over the last 20 years. So a lot of what I've done is, uh, is all kind of early childhood stuff. Um, it's like you know, traditional songs like Wheels on the Bus, Down by the Bay, stuff that you might be familiar with. Um, and then a series of uh, kind of big books that that go along with those recordings as well. So you have spent the last 20 years being a musician, basically. More or less. Um, you know, that's that's one component of it. I've, I've done marketing. I've done, the, you know, the publishing of the book side of it, mm-hmm. um, the maintenance of, of website and managing and, and all the other things that go along with a, a small business uh, in publishing. So, but yeah, I, I, I've had a recording studio, uh, since early college and, and have recorded lots of stuff, uh, on my own and it's, it's fun. I, I don't get to do it as much as I used to, but, uh, it's, it's certainly a passion of mine. So are others continuing with this project as you step away? No, uh, my parents retired and they kind of let me take over and, and, you know, the, the recording business side is, is tricky. People don't buy recorded, you know, a physical media like they used to. So it's, it's become more of a challenge, at least to sell physical media. Um, so that's one reason why I'm kind of letting it go. And, and my passion is more on in board games these days. So um, I've kind of done what I, I feel I can contribute to uh, education. And so I'm kind of just transitioning. I understand you're you're leaving yeah. the music business behind to become rich and famous making games. That's, That's right, the American dream. Yes. Um, so next question, as we get to know you a little bit here, this is all us geeks, of course. And so the question that comes to mind is, what makes you a geek? Well, you know, board game. I think geek culture in general is is becoming kind of more mainstream. So. Um, 
I, it's hard to answer that, but obviously I'm into games. I think that I was into, uh, I've always been into Legos, even in, in, uh, in late high school, um, I was using extra money to create a Lego city in my bedroom. And so I pretty much qualify for the geek, uh, membership at that point. Um, so yeah, Legos has always been a huge passion of mine and that's even grown in popularity over the years. It's much more acceptable for, uh, grown people to really dig Legos. So, uh, Legos board games, I'm really into film. Uh, my wife and I share film as a, as a common hobby. So we're all caught up on the, the Oscar nominations and so forth. So yeah, I would say those are the three big passions of mine. Obviously music. I didn't say that, mm-hmm. but, uh, that's not very geeky, I suppose. Well, that kind of leads into the next question is, do you have any geek level passions for anything that most people would not consider geeky? So something that's relatively normal that you raise up with your passion to the level of geekdom. Hmm. Relatively normal. I would say, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm into sweets in a way that most people think is ridiculous. And, um, I'm a big like candy fan, candy bars and, you know, Wonka stuff and, I do take that stuff to the extreme. So I would say that that that's definitely a qualifier as well. I like that. That's very interesting. Yeah. What, what then is your favorite candy? I know that's a hard question. Um, I like plain M&Ms. That's pretty much my go-to. That is not what I was expecting from a, a connoisseur of candy. They're very universal though. They're, they're good during the day. They're good, you know, before bed. I, I definitely go for the M&Ms often. We're, we're learning very interesting things here. Um, <laughs> to to round out the Pat and Jeff King warm-up questions, what drives you to do what you do? With all the creative outlets in the world out there, uh, obviously you've explored some of those. Why make games? That's a good question. Um, I think games is uh, – I'm a very kind of controlled person. Um I control a lot of things in my environment, and I think that's one of the things that I'm drawn to with game design is you're really controlling a, an experience for people um, that's built around thought and it's built around art. And um, I, I find it really intriguing to set a, a, some parameters up and just tell a group of people that this is how you're going to behave and perform in, in this scenario and with the end result being fun. And that's really, really intriguing. So as far as what drives me to do this, I'm, I'm not sure that that answered that. But uh, I just I love games and I love that fun and the excitement of, of that experience and, and working within those parameters, whether I'm designing in parameters or whether I'm um, playing a game in someone else's parameters. I think that's really interesting to stay within those boundaries um, and try to have fun within them. So when it's game night at your household, what games do you enjoy playing besides your own? Uh, we typically do kind of middleweight Euro type stuff. Um, once in a while, we'll do a party game. You know, some of the, the cream of the crop party games like Telestrations. But we stick with, with the middleweight Euro stuff. We like to get one or two games in a night. We don't like to do you know, Arkham Horror for eight hours. And, you know, I don't have too many friends that are super, super into games in that way. So I need to keep it on the lighter side to, uh, to keep them as friends. <laughs> <laughs> so what, so what came out for instance at the last game night? Oh, the last game night, um, my games came out. So that's in doing this full time, I have to bring my games to the table a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do go out to a game store most Wednesdays. And, uh, for example, last night we played Shakespeare and we played Snow Tales. Um, the week before that, we played The Gallerist and, uh, geez, I think that's all we played that night. So, yeah, again, it's kind of some of the, the light to middle stuff. And, um, I don't know. I just like the time frame of, of the middleweight stuff. I like that uh, there, you know, if, if there's an appropriate game arc in there, um, there's a right amount of think in there. It seems to be uh, the right fit for me. All right. Now let's talk a bit about about your games and in terms of your progression into making games. Um, 
obviously, as we go forward, we're going to be talking about a bunch of very tiny games, but I believe you started with larger games. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Um, my first design was um, was kind of a fluke. I didn't set out to design a game. I was actually on a wave runner in the middle of a lake, and I thought of uh, a horse racing game, which eventually became Longshot. And in fact, three days later, it became Longshot because I became so obsessed with creating that game that was in my head that I went home and made a prototype and with um, betting chips and play money and et cetera. Um, right away so that I could like see what this experience was all about. I was super, I was, you know, supercharged about it and just couldn't stop until I actually had a physical prototype and, um, everything kind of went from there. I, I kind of was pitching that game a little bit to companies. Uh, this is, uh, 2000 actually summer of 2000 in 2001. I had a couple games at that point and I was pitching mostly to, um, some of the uh, more main, like smaller mainstream um, mass market companies, like out of the box and, and and Buffalo Games, and so, so a lot of the feedback I was getting was tailored to their preferences. So it kind of um, set my course uh, to a different direction in, in creating uh, party games for the you know, kind of middle 2000s era. So I did a, a few of those. And then I kind of swung swung back to what I was passionate about, which was uh, the middleweight Euro games. And, and Cinque Terre is another one that um, is uh, by Rio Grande Games. And that came out in 2013. Um, and that's kind of a middleweight pick up and deliver. Really uh, kind of simple rules, low entry point, but a lot of think and a lot of uh, depth once you kind of start playing. Um, and I'm always drawn to that type of design that, that is really kind of easy to get into. And then it really just opens up immediately, um, so that all the rules can kind of get out of the way and you can think about the interesting stuff. Um, and so, yeah, and, and recently I've been doing the, the pack of game stuff, which, you know, we can kind of go into next. Well, first, um, just cause I, I think a lot of the listeners that find this very interesting. Uh, you talked about your games being published by others. And I think this is something that would definitely, you know, if someone is listening and going, should I crowdfund or should I not? Can you talk a little bit about the process of taking your game and, ha- and the, the pitch and handing it over and getting it published through someone else? Sure. Um, you know, it's 2016. So the, what I'm talking about is now 16 years um, in this process. And so Kickstarter has only been around for a few years now. Mm-hmm. So um, self-publishing was a completely different thing in 2000. It's something I shied away from mostly because I was doing it with my music at that time. And I didn't want to like double down on self-publishing. Um, so anyway, um, the, the process of, of handing something over to somebody, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty easy, at least for me. You, you have to do your homework, first of all, when you're going to pitch to somebody. You have to know what kinds of games they're looking for and what they typically publish. Um, and you don't waste their time. You you approach them um, at a convention when you've already made contact to them for an appointment, et cetera. So I can, we can kind of talk about um, the do's and don'ts of, of approaching someone. But, but once a publisher is interested um, – you know, they'll, they'll take it on, they'll test it and they'll say, Hey, I think this needs more balance. What do you have in mind for that? Do you want to, you know, take a look at that and revise it? So it just kind of depends on, you know, where the game is and what the publisher wants to do, et cetera. I don't know if that answered the question, but. Well, uh, to, to kind of springboard off that, I think a lot of people would probably be very interested in terms of what you found to be good do's and don'ts in, appro- in approaching publishers. Sure. Well, I kind of rattled a few of them off there, but. Um, you know, I, I would get a couple games under your belt. I, I think some designers, um, new designers may think that their first design is, you know, fantastic and that everybody should want it, et cetera. Um, try to get a few designs under your belt. Um, and that helps you gain perspective. Um, and it helps you really look at your games, um, away from them and, and be able to kind of walk around the design and separate yourself from them. Um, when you start talking about them like they're your baby, um, you're in trouble because you really need to detach for the most part and let it be a product 
that is going to succeed in the market based on whoever touches it. Um, so I would, um, you know, get a couple designs under your belt, then do your homework and find out which publishers you, um, think might be right for those designs. Um, maybe contact them via email and say, Hey, I have a design I think would be good for you. You don't give them any ideas over email uh, or attach anything until they ask for it. Um, hopefully you'll be fortunate enough to set up an appointment at a convention. So yes, I would encourage you to start going to conventions and networking and getting to know the industry. Um, it's bigger than ever. So there's lots of homework to do. Um, and when you do get an appointment, be, um, be courteous, have the information, have the rules, uh, written out and, uh, have a, have a kind of a one sheet that kind of describes the game, uh, maybe a target demographic age, uh, what sets that game apart from others, uh, things like that. Kind of a sell sheet, something that really kind of uh, summarizes what the product is, per se. And then, uh, you know, get some feedback. Be very open to publisher feedback because these are people that know the industry. They know their audience. And oftentimes they're not there to, uh, you know, they don't want to offend you, but they want to publish good games, the best games possible. And so they're going to try to be constructive and honest. And um, I, I kind of like that because it's like, you know, th that's really valuable information that could help your game when you revise it and then pitch it again to somebody else. And that's happened before for me anyway that, mm -hmm. you know, I'll get, I'll get some notes and revise it and then repitch it and then it gets picked up. And it was a result of this publisher's comments. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how I would do it. And this is, and if, if you're listening, um, I think one of the big important points to make here is that this is the game of crowdfunding. I love Kickstarter. I love the, the idea of crowdfunding, but you have to be prepared for a ton of stuff if you are going to self-publish your own game. And if you are not prepared to run a business then there are a lot of other companies out there who would probably love to at least get an email from you about your finished game um, with your complete rule set. You know, so if you are not totally prepared to be a small business owner instantly, go pitch, you know, try it out, see what happens, put yourself out there. Um, they're not scary. It's not the end of the world. Just send an email and see what happens. That's great advice. And most publishers I've dealt with are very approachable, especially when you start kind of networking and, and you and you get in there and you realize these are great guys. It's not, it's not like the music industry or other industries. These are this is a cool. It's a great community. Um, and you're completely right about how much business is involved on the Kickstarter side. I mean, yes, I design, but I mostly I market and you know, prep stuff for conventions and you spend a ton of money on other stuff that has nothing to do with, you know, the games, you know, it's, it's, it is a business, it's publishing, it's, it's trying to get your games to stand out on a shelf so that that potential buyer chooses your product over somebody else. And so that is a lot of work. It's a lot of brain power. Um, and it really cannot be overlooked when you think about doing a project. And let's dig dig a little more into that because, as I mentioned before, you ha you ran a successful Kickstarter. I have the games sitting on my desk. Um, so you got to experience the entire process, which is something that a lot of people approaching Kickstarter have no idea of. Um, so let's first talk about um, these these tiny little games, the pack of games here. What was the genesis of that idea? Where did that come from to make all these little games? Um, so this is, and, and still in an era where, you know, Kickstarter was around, but I was still um, pitching to publishers and I would still do that with, with the right project. I, I don't necessarily think I'm going to self publish every single thing I do, but uh, this came in, I think it was 2013, and I get a little bit tired in my own prototypes of the same card sizes. And, you know, I, I sometimes I just try to spice it up to keep, you know, myself interested. And so um, I thought of a tile laying game and a color connecting game that had um, either three squares on it or three stripes 
that equaled the same kind of dimensions as the three squares. And, and that game, um, today is called Hue, H-U-E. And, um, so I printed that design and it, I think it had 24 cards in it at the time or 20. And I was using some wooden pieces to mark kind of area majority control type of, uh, some kind of mechanic along those lines. And so my wife and I were testing and it was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Um, but what if we could like get rid of the wood pieces and like just have 20 of these kind of tileish type cards. And so, um, I had a couple ideas at that time, but nothing that was really kind of working. And then I thought of the idea where the last card that you hold and don't play are the three colors that you're going to score. And that was enough of a, oh, it's a cool mechanic anyway, but it was enough of a way to make the game work with just cards and have a long-term strategy thread that, you know, would keep you interested the whole time. And so that game, um, in making that design, I thought, you know, it'd be cool if I had a really tiny tuck box that held these cards. And so I went online and found some um, like tuck box template where you could plug in your dimensions and then you get you get the box and you just print it out. And so I did that and um, with a few tweaks. And so I started carrying that around. We went to Hawaii actually right after I made that first game. And I was testing it a lot because we had downtime at a restaurant or on the plane or whatever. And it kind of occurred to me like, wow, something about this form factor, like you don't have to be intentional about taking games to this event. You just always have it. You have it in your coat pocket or your whatever. And so I was really intrigued by just this size because, um, it just was so easy to have with you. And the playing time of that game was also rather short, but satisfying. And so I started thinking, man, what, what else is possible with this card size and this in a small tuck box? And then it just kind of exploded. I, I really just started thinking about lots of concepts and realized the high utility that comes with a card that's one by three. And I mean, I went through a list of three letter names and thought maybe I should just kind of you know, stick with just three letter titles. And that, that actually made the process easier in both thinking about theme and title and mechanics. And so I just, I mean, I came up with a list of like 50 things in, in two months and I, I'm way backed up on getting those prototypes to the table because I just, you know, once I print one, I have to test it and so forth. So I'm backed up, but that's to kind of, you know, finish up and answer your question in full. Um, that, Hue game, which at the time I was calling RGB for um, red, blue, green, um, that kind of kickstarted the whole thing, and and it just kind of took off from there. And if you're listening here and you and you really don't, you're not familiar with the pack of game, I, I recommend uh, that you hop on over to Chris Handy's website just right now as you're listening. Um, should be a link in the show notes there um, just to check out these games. And, and then you can feel really bad about the fact that, that you don't have as many ideas probably as Chris Handy does. Um, Cause there are eight games in total in this first set. And it ranges from matching games and auction games, fighting games, uh, bluffing games. There's a dexterity game in there. And my favorite, which is called Shh, where it's like a word building game, except you have to be quiet and you can't say anything. And, and just, there's a ton of really fantastic ideas in these tiny little boxes. So I definitely recommend you go over there and check them out now. Um, even, you know, whether or not you're going to do the, the next set, which you should, uh, but you should, you know, pick up this first set because these are great games. Now let's. Well, th- thanks. Yeah, first absolutely. Of all. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great comment. So I appreciate that. Yeah. They're, they're just ingenious. Um, it was one of the first full games that I, I had to to grab just because the 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 premise of the whole idea was so intriguing that I just wanted to have these in hand to see what they were like. Um, now you ran a successful Kickstarter. You got you know you got to to make the games, make you know more games and then make a little pouch for them. Can you walk me through so you know seven to fourteen days after your Kickstarter ends all of a sudden 
money drops into your account. Can you talk a bit about the design, you know, the, the process from there? So you go from idea to manufactured product. Okay. Um, yeah. So the first thing I had to do was kind of, um, pay down some debt, um, for some illustrations and for, um, some LLC legal fees and different things. Um, so some of it went away to that. Um, after that, it was mostly just finishing up and fine tuning. I had to create a, the point of purchase box for that. I was going to, um, have for retailers that have, that held five of each of the eight titles. And so I actually took a magic, the gathering boosters box, um, scanned it and kind of reconstructed it in Photoshop and then iterated and created, um, what is today's point of purchase box for, for the first set. And so that took a few months to kind of get all that dialed in. I had to do, um, get UPC codes, um, for all the games and, just lots of little kind of finishing touches um, and also just starting some of the businessy stuff um, going to. And when I launched the first Kickstarter that you mentioned the pod case, um, I found that like about a week before we launched. And so I added it to the Kickstarter, but um, it, the one that I had in mind, I was, I had to get from the a U.S. distributor um, and it only would hold seven games f- kind of flat and it wasn't, it wasn't made for these, but it was going to work. Um, and after the Kickstarter, I did a lot more, had more time and, and did more research and, and found a company that would make them from scratch to my specs. And so, um, that's another thing I spent time doing is kind of crafting that pod, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, and that, and you know, my printer needed about a three month lead time. And so it took about eight months, I think, to, to get all of that stuff dialed in. And we, we did our public launch at Gen Con, um, and we were, we were shipping to backers by late June. Um, and then all through June and, and July, people were, the, the games were trickling into backers. And, uh, so, but we only had about five days of, uh, kind of, of, a buffer from the publisher. Like we had to kind of next, we didn't next day them, but we barely got them to Gen Con for our public launch. So it was, it was a close call and we really wanted to have them for that launch. So luckily, you know, we were able to pull it off. And you mentioned the, um, the display boxes for retailers. Had you already made those connections with retailers or was this something that happened after funding or when, when, when did that come into play? I think everybody's, you know, <laughs> anybody who's listening to this and wants to publish a game, their dream has to be, oh, I'll walk into the game store and there's the game. Right. Um, so the answer is no. Um, you know, you, you really need to, you need distribution if you're going to get into to retail. Mm-hmm. Um, you need somebody to, to really handle most of that stuff. Now, can you do it yourself? Sure. But you're going to be, it's a big uphill battle. So. Um, I have kind of a sub distributor that feeds to the bigger distributors and they, you know, print it in their, we, their monthly catalog or whatever. And so retailers hopefully saw it there. And, and if they were interested and wanted to try it out in their store, then they could buy. Of course I did as much as I could going to Gen Con, going to BGG Con, et cetera, trying to promote and get retailers and uh, customers aware of the product. So that's just, you know, more of what falls on the um, kind of business side of things. That's your responsibility. Now that you have a game, the hardest part is to sell it. You know, you can have the greatest game in the world, but if nobody knows about it or you don't have a way to get it to people, then it doesn't matter. Now, did you have a prior relationship with this distributor or was this distributor new for pack a game? New. It's, it's new because this is my first uh, as a publisher, this is my first game. And so I, I had a couple of people in mind and, and chose one. And um, so that that's another thing that happened after the Kickstarter. How was, um, and there's a lot of technical questions, but I promise people are going to be very interested. That's in fine. No, that's great. It's, it's great. Um, how was the process of, of approaching and then being accepted by a distributor? Was that mostly, mostly by email was, did, you know, obviously you probably sent them the game at some point. 
Well, I, I'm working with a, a kind of a distributor agent. So he kind of pitches to distributors in a sense. And so, um, you know, he, he had the one sheet and did a video and so forth and presented, um, my product and others that were kind of coming at that time. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the, the bigger distributors will kind of, um, you know, hand pick, or maybe they'll take all of the line and they'll, they'll bring it in and try it out. Um, I think the challenge with, with the point of purchase box is that some of the big distributors have a policy that, um, if the, if the product has an MSRP of over a hundred dollars, then it's a special order item. And so unfortunately the MSRP, um, for the point of purchase box is 240. And, um, you know, distributor, so retailers get it for about half of that, you know, anywhere from a hundred to 120. Well, so that made it a little bit tricky for retailers who are going to Alliance or GTS or whoever, um, saying, Hey, I'm interested in this. Okay. Well, we need to special order that because our policy is blah, blah, blah. So that was a, a small hurdle that, you know, I was unaware of going into this. Um, I still feel like the, the point of purchase is, is absolutely the way to sell this product at a store. Um, and I, and I think, you know, five of each title, et cetera, those are the right decisions, but you know, I'm not Hasbro. I'm not wizards. I can't just go in and say, you're going to do this for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the new guy. And so they're going to test it and they're going to be hesitant. That's just their nature. Now, if you're, if you're listening there at home or at at the office pretending to work and, uh, (laughs) and this stuff doesn't interest you at all, uh, then you should pitch and not do Kickstarter. Um, because if you do have a successfully kickstarted game, you must be interested in this kind of thing and you must do it because otherwise you're going to, uh, you know, make your 500 copies or a thousand copies and ship out the, you know, couple few hundred, uh, that were kickstarted for. And then the rest will sit in your garage forever. You're hundred percent right. And that's, it's a great comment. And I love the way you worded it. Like this is, this is it, man. This is, this is a lot of what I was doing after the Kickstarter. It really is. The, so. the designing of the game, if you are designer slash, you know, uh, owner of the business, the, the designing of the game happens very early and then stops. Yep. And then the rest of it is all this other stuff that you must be interested in. If you're going to successfully kickstart a game to completion that's right and as i said earlier i'm backed up on especially in this line of games that i thought of a year and a half ago and the reason why is because i'm doing i am designing new games here and there you know i'm finally getting some of these to the table but also i'm doing a lot more business mm-hmm. and um and i do enjoy it but you know it every part of the what i'm describing has its own challenges and i also think that you know you could be happy with your game sitting in a in a hobby store, which I am. But I also think that for this particular line, it, it has potential to kind of cross over into, um, you know, retailers that typically don't carry games. Um, so I'm also trying to work to to get it into some of those outlets, and that's a, that's a very difficult thing for one dude to try to pull off. So yeah. So let's talk of, about. Um, the Kickstarter that's that's coming, or if you're listening, this actually should be on right now. Now, this is the Paco game set two. So we've got brand new games in these tiny little boxes um, that are coming out. And can you give, you know, just kind of the the elevator pitch for the Kickstarter? Sure. So this is uh, another set of um, the Paco game format, which is 30 cards that are one inch by three inches. Um, and they come in a small tuck box. There's a, there's a rule sheet in there too. Um, the first set was about variety for gamers and non-gamers. Um, we happen to give each game a rating, a difficulty rating of one, two, or three, which is casual, intermediate, or challenging. And, um, the first set was kind of balanced with a little bit of all of those. This set is more twos and threes only, and it, um, they're, they're more short kind of middleweight games. Um, so in this set, we're looking at, uh, gym, which is uh, like gym class. 
And it's a kind of a team game where you can play in teams of two, four, or six. And it's a game in which uh, it has two phases. You're, you're drafting uh, kids into your hand as a team. And um, when you draft a bully, then you can influence which of the four, uh, which four of the six events might be played in the second half of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the second half of the game, those four events will be placed in front of, um, you know, in between both teams. And you're going to play a kid to one of the events on your turn. And, um, you know, in doing so, you can also take some kind of action based on what's on that kid or where you play that kid, you know, which event you play him to. Um, and in the end, you are going to um, your total on your side at that event against your opponent's total on that side or on, at that event. And you'll have a cumulative total uh, across all four uh, events and then whoever has the most points wins. Uh, there's also the I mentioned the bullies allows you to influence which events will be played in the in the second round. Well, when you play a bully in the you know event round, then uh, you also can move a coach, and a coach kind of reduces the chaos on one of the sides of the event. So you can use that offensively and defensively. You can either um, kind of lock in some good players on your side of an event and put a coach there and and kind of lock them in for a while. Or if you've, there's a lot of junk and you've manipulated um, your the your opponent's side at an event, you can kind of lock in some other junk, and then they have to play a bully to move that coach out, et cetera. So there's kind of interesting stuff going on. Um, so that is Jim. Rum is is a pressure luck set collecting game. It plays very um, it plays in quick turns. It's not a speed game, but the, the turns are quick because you're either drawing a card quickly or you're playing a set. And um, when you on the cards, there are two bottles on the top of the card and a different bottle on the bottom of the card. And so when you're, you're collecting these cards that have a bunch of bottles on them, you're trying to play sets of a certain color. And when you play, let's say, four blue bottles, then you grab the captain card and, and rotate it to the four facing you. And, and that basically says, I earned four blue points. Somebody else could steal it later in the game by playing five or more blue bottles, and they would take those points and put it in front of them. Um, there's The pressure luck is is when there's a single parrot card that will force either you to, to discard some cards if you draw it personally or if it shows up in the kind of beach area. Um, and the beach area is kind of a community um, set of cards, kind of like um, in Texas Hold'em. Um, everybody has a certain amount of cards that are also in their hand. Well, that kind of happens in this game too. Uh, the single bottles on the kind of beach cards are also part of your hand. So um, that makes for some interesting decisions and some blocking and so forth. Um so, and there's a rum trio, which allows you to kind of um, play three of a kind singles of a certain color, and you can steal the captain card from wherever it is and increase it by two. So anyway, it's it's kind of a fun, it's kind of a lighter but interesting pressure luck set collecting game. Um, the, the other two games are So, S-O-W, and that's a Moncala um, kind of mechanic in a garden scenario. And so every player has a their own wheelbarrow, um, that has kind of two slots under it. And, uh, on the other side of the wheelbarrow is a, a secret color and you're trying to, um, distribute seeds initially that turn into flowers and you're trying to get flowers to land in either side of your wheelbarrow, um, rows and collect flowers into your bouquet. And the more of your secret color you have in your bouquet, the more points you'll earn. Um, it's, it's a very kind of thinky game. The first time you play it, it's, you're just trying to grok the system and the timing and, and so forth. You have to play very defensive in that game, um, which isn't apparent until like the second or third time you play. There's times where you actually give your opponent a certain flower, um, so that they don't get three flowers on their turn. Because one of the things that happens is when, um, when you, you pick up all the cards and you distribute them around the board in the garden, um, if you, if the last card you place is a flower in somebody's wheelbarrow, then you um, you announce one of the two colors on that flower. And whoever controls that wheelbarrow um, gets to collect all flowers with that color on them. So sometimes you play defensive and you block somebody with that move. So there's a lot of kind of interesting things going on in that one. It's it's 
It's really fun. I really like that one. Um, and finally, there's Orc. Orc is a two-player-only game. Um, it is a game of basically uh, hand management and timing. And um, the games are about four minute, four or five minutes each, probably. And um, each card has um, one orc of, of a color and two orcs of a different color. And so you're, you're playing these orcs in certain territories. And when you play a card as, you know, with one orc, then you draw two cards in your hand. If you play it as a two orcs, then you just draw one card into your hand. And a battle will trigger um, you against your opponent when the kind of draw pile is depleted next to a territory. And then that's when that battle takes place. So you're, you're not only managing your hand, but you're trying to time and manage when battles will take place and try to have the most orcs at that, at that territory. Whoever has the most orcs when that battle occurs will control that territory territory for the whole game. And they will earn points for that territory and they'll earn points for any orcs left over in their hand at the end of the game that also match the color of that territory. So again, some more hand management. It's a constant battle of what should you play? What should you keep back? What do you think you're going to win? You don't want to overwin anything because those are cards that could be still in your hand. So there's a lot of um, good stuff going on for basically a five minute game. And that's orc. Now, if you're listening to this, it's, what I recommend you do is just is hop onto the Kickstarter page so you can see all of these games because um, this second set and, and obviously the first set that I have, um, what these really are, are are great examples of abstract games with just enough theme in them uh, to to really get you into what you're doing. Um, some are more abstract than others, but um, you know, there's people have a lot of debates within. Uh, the game design community of um, theme versus mechanics. And these are all really good examples of, of strong mechanics with just enough theme to, to get you really invested. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the Kickstarter project itself. What is the, the goal for the, the project here? The goal is 20,000, $20,000. And how much does someone need to pay to get in the game? So we haven't, that's a good question. So uh, we have two early bird levels um, f- that will last for 48 hours. And um, those are either a 20 reward level or a 30. The 20 gets you all four games and any stretch games that we unlock. The 30 level gets you the same thing, but you'll get the pod case as well. Um, if you miss the early bird, then it's either 24 or 34. And what made you decide to do this kind of early bird into the campaign? Um, to get momentum early. Uh, success of a Kickstarter campaign, hap- you know, it, it has to do with those first two days. Mm-hmm. And if you can get momentum and drive money early, then your chances of a successful Kickstarter go way up. And so, you know, I think that early backers should get a reward. They should get – they should have – um, some incentive and, and so that's why it's in there. And for those, for those listening at home, I, I will say that this is another one of those big debates. Um, some people really get behind early birds. Some people hate early birds, but if you're going to do one, um, there are a couple of ways that, that tend to make people a little more easy about it. One is this way, um, a timed early bird as opposed to a number of copies. I'll tell you right now, if you're doing a Kickstarter, the number of copies early bird is always going to draw ire from some people. Me included. I don't like it. But timed early birds are different because that's more about um, you're here at the beginning of the project and not, well, you get you just got lucky and we're the first, you know, 50 or whatever. Um, there are also... People are experimenting with early birds, so you know, feel free to do that in your own campaign at home. Um, some people have done shipping early birds, so um, you know, people in this particular set are going to get theirs sooner. Which you know, they're not really saving any money that way, but they're getting the product sooner, so some kind of bonus. So feel free to experiment with that, but I would definitely avoid the well, the first fifty people in the door 
get it for this price and everybody else do bad. Um, now it's, you said it's $34 to, to get this plus the stretch games, correct? It's 34 to get this and the stretch games and the pod case. Right. I'm, I'm, I mean, uh, sorry, I meant after the, um, the early bird. Yeah. So th- it's, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. So $34 gets you these four. And now how likely is it that there are going to be, you know, in the, in the last pack of games, we had eight, we got four. We're looking at here. How likely do you think it is that we'll get, um, another eight? I have no idea. I really, there's no way to know. Mm-hmm. There's no way to know in the first round. So I, but it's just not a question I can answer. Are, have you already chosen the four games that would go into those stretch goal categories? I've chosen which are available. Mm. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to vote and um, we're going to vote between two games, which one that backers think that we should publish first. Mm-hmm. And then when that one is decided and we are hopefully fortunate enough to stretch to another one, then the one that didn't get vote on will get pushed to the next level and I'll introduce another game and we will vote between those two games. And kind of transitioning more um, as we're, we're wrapping up here, what is the coolest thing about these games for you? Do you have a particular favorite in these or what's just the, the thing that you love about this set of games? I like that they're, they're games that I'm interested in playing. Now, most of them, some are more interesting than others to me, but that's the nature of the set. There's a lot of variety and some resonate with me more than others. Mm-hmm. And that's the case with anybody who's interested in games. Um, I think what's most intriguing to me is that I can have such a small product and I can get it on the table. It actually some of them get a lot bigger than you might think once they hit the table and you can get a game to the table quickly and at a place where you normally wouldn't be bold enough to get a game out. And so, um, for example, uh, I was in Berkeley a couple weekends ago with my wife and we got our name on the list at a restaurant. And while we were waiting in line, we played, um, uh, a tableless pack of game, which is probably going to be a stretch goal in this set. Um, we played that for 10 minutes. And just as we were finishing up, I got the buzzer, which wasn't 45 minutes, happened to be 10. Anyway, we were seated. We played two games of Orc before the food came. And and it was like, wow, we just got three games in when normally you wouldn't even have had a chance to play anything. You know, So I think that's, to me, what's really cool is not only can you pull that off, but you don't you're not lugging much around. You're just holding a few small games and um, that's the value to me. You're probably not going to uh, play Battlestar Galactica between your, your water and appetizers hitting the table. Right. Now, if someone is on the fence about pledging uh, for this next set of pack of games, what can you say to them at home right now to get them to go do it immediately? Well, I think it's a pretty unique concept. I think it's – and beyond the concept, I mean I know it's – some people still maybe might write it off as a novelty. Yeah, pack of game, pack of gum, blah, blah, blah. What's really interesting and I think if you, you design and you're really interesting and you're interested in how games work, um, each one of these has 30 cards and, and we, we've figured out a way to use them in lots of different interesting ways. And – I don't, I mean, at least I don't have anything else in my collection that kind of does that and, and serves that same purpose and has such a small footprint that it, that I just keep them in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think between the size, what's possible, um, the playing time is really great. Um, and, and the fact that not, not only can you play them out and about, but they do kind of draw attention to games and the hobby from people that typically wouldn't be that interested or would be put off by it, something like this. So I think that um, that's kind of another bonus is like, hey, you know, this this can get people excited about it if they ever, you know, check out what you're doing. But this is a great set of games. The first set was was about variety. This really is is, I think, more 
a better fit for me as a gamer and the kind of game that I want to play quickly. Um, so I would say definitely check them out. And is there anything that, uh, that you feel we haven't covered yet uh, through this that you just want to make sure to, to get out there before we wrap things up? No, I think, I think your questions were great and I think we, we covered a lot of ground. So I, I really appreciate it. This is, this is a good discussion and, and, um, and the, what you're emphasizing about on the Kickstarter starter th- side of things is really important. And, uh, so I'm really glad you had me on today. Oh, we are really glad to have you. Now, if someone's out there listening and they really want to, to reach out and to communicate with you, uh, how can they, they find you out there in the wild internets? On the internet. So you can find me at uh, perplexed.com, P-E-R-P-L-E-X-T, or you can go to packogame.com. Um, while the Kickstarter is live, you can go to packogame2, just the letter or the number two.com, and that will take you, it'll be a redirect to the Kickstarter page. You can also find me on Twitter um, at Chris Handy, C-H-R-E-S-H-A-N-D-Y. And I post a lot of design stuff there as well. And finally, we have a perplexed page on Facebook as well and would always appreciate a like. We'll keep you up to date that way too. Well, there you have it, folks. If you want to reach out and uh, and talk to Chris, that's how you do it. And you at home, you need to head over to the Kickstarter page for Paco Games Set 2 right now and pledge because these are ingenious little games in a great set and you will feel really stupid if you don't have them by the time this is done. So go ahead and grab them now because this is uh, the, the best way to get your hands on those. I um, want to thank you very much, Chris, for, uh, for coming on and joining me today. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you very much at home for listening. This has been the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition. Thank you for checking out United Geeks Network Family Member. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find the Game Crafter Official Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to the tabletop game print on demand company, The Game Crafter, and its growing community. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.